This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey, movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix Overdose, your stop for the purest, highest quality extra movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Monica Castillo. Hello, Andrew. Hey, Monica. You ready to OD? Sure. It's not what people usually aim for when they do this, but sure. (laughs) (laughs) This is the first installment of Cinema Fix Overdose, which is a new series of bonus monthly episodes we're going to do. And just to give you an idea of what inspired this, uh, before I founded Film Geek Radio two years ago, I hosted a podcast called Movie Chatter at randomchatter.com for several years. And it was like Cinema Fix in that we reviewed mainstream blockbuster films every week, but it was different in that that's not all we discussed. We also discussed things like old movies and independent films and, and foreign films that we watched. And when I formed Film Geek Radio, the hope was, and still is, that eventually we'd be able to have separate shows dealing with all of those different genres. That way, if our listeners don't want to hear about documentaries or foreign films, they can just tune into Cinema Fix or vice versa. But that hasn't happened yet. We got a lot of shows on the network, but we don't have any dealing with those types of films. And I've gotten a few emails from people, including uh, loyal listeners who have followed me ever since I hosted Movie Chatter, for some reason. <laughs> you love them, don't lie. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love our listeners, and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that people are devoted. But basically, people want more movie discussion. They don't just want to hear about the new mainstream stuff. They want to hear about other movies that we would recommend. Hey, I don't blame them. <laughs> yeah, when a lot of mainstream movies are terrible, I suppose it's natural that you would want to hear about other things that might be better. So because we love our listeners so much, Monica, you and I will be putting out a bonus episode of Cinema Fix at the beginning of each month where we talk about what we've seen over the past 30 days or so and what might be worth checking out. Uh, We're also going to be looking ahead at the coming month and offering some DVD recommendations. And this is not a regular episode of Cinema Fix, just to clarify. If this is your first time listening, this is not a regular episode of the show. This is extra. And there is a part of me that is considering charging money for these episodes. Nothing much, maybe just like a dollar or two every month. So that's something we're thinking about, just because we do have costs to maintain. It does cost us money to pay for hosting. Uh, and also, it takes up time to, to do an extra episode each month and for me to edit them. I was going to say, and Andrew, you're the main editor for all of these shows. For so many shows on the network, yes. Uh, but for now, this is going to be free. To get you hooked. If you're a fan of the show, please write in. Let us know if you like this idea, if you like these first few bonus episodes. And let us know if you would be willing to pay a dollar or two each month for a bonus episode like this. Uh, we definitely want your input and while we wish that we could keep everything free it's just a fact of doing business now in the online age that that might not always be possible so we're we're still considering our various options uh monica and i want to give you what what you want but i also can't run this network without listener support and it does cost money to keep the feeds in the site up and running so that's basically what the situation is right now but yeah this is the first episode of cinema fix overdose as we're calling it. So let's dive into things and talk 
movies. This is the episode for September 2013. Monica, let's start with you. What did you see last month? Let's go Let's go back and forth between you and me and discuss what we saw. Well, I saw 30 films last month. Only 30, huh? Well, that's about a, almost a movie a day. Yeah, that's way more than me. Okay. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you sounded really judgmental there for a second, and I was about to, you know, hit you through the computer. I wish I still had the time to watch a movie a day. I make time. It's it's sometimes, you know, I'm writing and ha- have the movie on at the same time. It's a little insane. Well, I, I maybe it's because I, I feel like... I don't have as much time to watch movies now as I once did. That could just be because now I'm watching so much television. Oh, yeah. Well, that's another thing. So I don't really watch too much television. I'm very picky on that. So I'm really only watching, like, Orange is the New Black. Shout out. (laughs) I'm always following a minimum of half a dozen shows, I feel like. So that takes up a lot of my time. That would take that up. Um, But, yeah, so of the 30 films, I've picked five to talk about. And one of the more fun ones that I've seen recently has to be Face Off, directed by John Woo back in 1997, starring an amazing Nicolas Cage and John Travolta, and it is amazing. I don't know what I hate wearing worse. Your face or your body? I mean, I enjoy boning your wife, but uh, let's face it, we both like it better the other way, yes? So why don't we just trade back? can't give back what you've taken from me oh well plan b let's just kill each other this is such a fun movie i had not seen this movie before and i was almost upset at the end of this movie that i hadn't seen it before because it was so much fun all the effects are practical um the stunts are real you know they're actually throwing guys from boats and things like that should i read the synopsis Sure, for people that somehow don't know what Face Off is. If you missed it like I missed it, because my mother didn't let me watch certain films when I was younger. Your mom didn't let you watch R-rated movies about people having their faces cut off and switched? Not when I was seven when this came out. (laughs) So, to foil an extortion plot, an FBI agent undergoes a face transplant surgery and assumes the identity and physical appearance of a ruthless terrorist. But the plan backfires when the same criminal impersonates the cop with the same method. Yes. And it's John Travolta playing Nicolas Cage, and it's Nicolas Cage playing John Travolta, and everything is insane, and it is wonderful. And they are doves, because it's John Woo. This is a great movie. I'm not sure if I've seen all of the movies John Woo has made in the United States. I've seen a few of them. He did go through a period in the 90s where Hollywood brought him over from Hong Kong and was like, hey, make English movies. And I know he he did Mission Impossible 2 and a few others, Face Off is definitely the best American film directed by John Woo that I've seen. You'll have to look hard to find better performances out of those two. (laughs) Nicolas Cage's eyes alone will forever scar me. There's no other way to, to describe it other than it's insane. It's really off the rails. John Woo is what Michael Bay would be if Michael Bay wasn't a total hack. (laughs) Truth. John Woo's movies are all insane. It's all about just like, there's a lot of soapy melodrama, but then there's also just these really crazy shootouts and big explosions and 
doves. Doves. As you mentioned. In a church. Yes, in a church. I, I love John Woo. Yes. The guy's amazing. Have you seen a lot of his Hong Kong work? I have not. I think this might be one of the first movies of his, actually, that I came across. Yeah, because I haven't seen The Killer. I haven't seen Red Cliff. And he has more stuff coming out now. You definitely need to see The Killer and Hard Boiled. Yeah. Those are probably his most famous Hong Kong action films, for good reason. They're really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Red Cliff, I would definitely recommend people check out if you can get your hands on the international version, which is like four hours, <laughs> split into two parts. Nice. Not the two-hour American cut. Fair. But yeah, I love good John Woo, and Face Off is absolutely amazing. And you're you're right, just Nicolas Cage and John Travolta do such a good job of imitating each other that sometimes it's hard to remember, like, wait, 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 this guy's the cop and that guy's the criminal. Okay, I gotta keep it straight. (laughs) Yeah, it gets really creepy. Actually, the the least disturbing part of the movie was the actual face transplant. Yeah. Which, of course, obviously not sound science, but go with it. It's everything that happens after that that's crazy. Yeah. Like uh, when the bad guy is like trying to seduce the good guy's wife and yeah. all this other stuff. It gets insane. And, oh, and there's also a really good boat chase. Yeah, yeah. Like boat chases, I feel, for some reason, I feel like they're really hard to do well. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of boat chases just look and feel the same. It's like, oh, there's a boat, you're on water, and you're chasing each other. And then they're filming it from a helicopter or another boat next to them. Most boat chases aren't very exciting to me, but the one in Face Off is pretty awesome. Yeah, plenty of explosions, so we're all good. That was another fun part I had pointing out to my friend, because there's a lot of just fireworks. Not just, not it's not an explosion, it's just, like, fireworks that take off. (laughs) So I'm like, firework. (laughs) There's nothing that burns like that other than (laughs) gunpowder. All right. Well, you're recommending people check out Face Off. I'm going to recommend a movie that came out on Blu-ray and DVD a few months ago, I believe. It's a movie called No, and it was directed by Pablo Lorraine, who I believe is a Chilean filmmaker, or maybe Argentinian. I'd have to look it up. This is a movie that was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film last year. It stars... Gael Garcia Bernal as an ad executive in the 1980s who is tasked with coming up with an ad campaign to help defeat Pinochet, Chile's dictator, in the 1988 election. Um, And it's based on a true story. It's a big deal that happened. Uh, Chile went through a whole bunch of political turmoil in the 70s and 80s. And Pinochet was a terrible dictator. And then in the late 80s, finally, due to international pressure, they decided to actually have a democratic Mm -hmm. election. And so this movie is all about basically the PR campaign that went into the the no vote. So saying, don't vote for Pinochet, vote no. And what's really cool about it is that it actually includes a lot of the real ads that were played on the air. And that is fascinating to see these old 1980s commercials and political ads that came on at the time. Really, really cool. Yes, for us poli-sci nerds and all that kind of stuff, it was fun. Yeah, and we've talked before on the show, Monica, about how movies that are based on a true story are hard to do Mm -hmm. because you kind of already know the outcome most of the time and Hollywood just likes to play really loose with the facts. Mm -hmm. And I haven't done a lot of research to see how well no actually sticks to the facts, 
But as a movie, even though I knew how it was ultimately going to end, I still really loved it. And I loved the journey. I just loved getting to understand the political situation mm-hmm. and figure out everything that was going on. Just a really solid film. They do a really good job of explaining it because if you're not familiar with the history, then you're jumping into like the politics of another country. And I think they did a really good job of that as well as just like even like uh, people being afraid to leave the studio and things like that because they were being followed by Pinochet's men. That's the drama while this is all going on. And, and in, in addition to trying to develop and work with like 12 different groups that are all trying to seize control once Pinochet leaves in theory. So it's very interesting. Yeah, this is the second or third feature film directed by Pablo Lorraine, and now I really want to go back and watch some of his older work. Mm-hmm. Well, he also filmed this in like VHS a lot of this, right? Yeah, he, he uses the same video equipment that they were using in Chile mm-hmm. in 1988 to, to make these commercials. He uses that same camera equipment to film this movie. So it looks dated, and the aspect ratio is different, yeah. but visually you get used to it very quickly. Well, it's also cool because then when it switches on the commercials, it's not so jarring because your eyes are already adjusted to the weird lens flares and things like that. Right, and you can't tell. There are certain times where you can't tell if what you're watching is supposedly what's happening in the quote-unquote real world mm-hmm. or if you're actually just watching a commercial. So there's this, there's this really cool stuff going on just related to advertising and film as advertising mm-hmm. and all of that. And I really like the, just the, the discussions that they have in this movie about just like just, just about politics and about, you know, if, you, if you're trying to win an election, to what extent do you have to rely on tricks? Yeah. And good PR versus to what extent do you hope the message is going to be the selling point and the message is going to be what gets people to vote the way you want them to vote. And you're right. I knew a little bit about the political history of Chile, but I I didn't know a whole lot. And just seeing all the different political factors that are involved in this film was really interesting. Like, like there was this coalition of anti-Pinochet parties. Mm-hmm. They all had different interests. Yeah, they all had different interests. They all had different ideologies. You had certain groups that were more religious. You had certain groups that were more farther to the left or more, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. communist. You had other groups that were more conservative. And the only thing that was really uniting them was they didn't want Pinochet to be in power any longer, but they all had their own candidate that they ideally would like to put forth. There's just some really, really interesting political dynamics going Mm -hmm. on in the movie, and I would highly recommend that people check it out. I mean, as far as true-life amazing stories go, this movie is so much better than Argo, (laughs) in my opinion. And I say that as someone who who liked Argo overall. I think artistically it's a little deeper than Argo because, again, he's using the VHS, the same equipment. He's going back and using actual footage that was used, the ads that were used. Like a little bit more homework was done to piece it all together. Right. And this is, this is, I think Argo was in many ways just a very well done genre thriller. Mm -hmm. Whereas this movie actually seems like it's trying to be about something. It's trying to be about politics and advertising and narrative and how we tell stories and how we view our history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just a really, really well done film. 
I'm glad you liked it. Yes, I would also recommend it. All right. Well, what's next on your list? Next one that came across, uh, it was actually earlier this month, is a film from Francois Truffaut, it's a French one, uh, Day for Night, which came out in 1973. Um, and it basically follows the director, who's played by Francois Truffaut, as he struggles to complete his movie while coping with his weirdly crew. Um, everyone's got dramas, production assistants running away, all sorts of things are going on while he's still trying to keep control of this film. So it's a movie within a movie and the whole process that goes on with that. So this, for movie fans, it was a lot of, it, I think this is a great thing to watch, but even just the drama in between. At one point, a girlfriend leaves the main actor and he's devastated and then, you know, he's throwing a pity party and people are trying to get him to, no, come out, come out, no, please, we need you to finish the scene. <laughs> Those little things. <laughs> um, so it was definitely a lot of fun. I, it was great. It's not specifically a comedy, but for me, watching it, who's interested in the whole making of film, it was great for me. I have not seen Day for Night. I am behind on a lot of my Truffaut. Have you seen a lot of Truffaut's work? I have not, um, unfortunately. So I'm starting to work through a lot of the old classical directors that I've missed. I specialize mostly in early American cinema, so I started with a lot of silent films. So I'm good with my Buster Keaton and my Charlie Chaplin, and now been trying to work my way up through the 60s and 70s. I unfortunately haven't seen much else of Truffaut. Okay, so you would recommend that people see Day for Night? I would totally recommend people see Day for Night. Is this, I mean, you mentioned it's sort of funny. Is it supposed to be a comedy? Yeah, it's a very lighthearted look at the as the making the process of making a film. So it's a lot of human drama in between it as well. But, you know, everyone's egos, producers coming in and disturbing things and directors and the director having to deal with all of that at the same time. So it's all different little vignettes and like characters come in and out and you just follow along the storyline. Okay. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. The next movie I want to talk about is still in theaters, actually. It's playing in select cities around the country. Mm -hmm. It's a movie that's being distributed by Drafthouse Films. It was a big hit on the festival circuit. It's called I Declare War. Everyone in positions at 1,650. You attack at 1,700 hours. My watch doesn't go up to 1,700. Wesley, you're the key here. If anyone comes into this base, you have to shoot them and kill them. Okay? Okay. Say, say, I will shoot to kill. I will shoot to kill. I can do it. I know you can. Okay, people. 1,700 hours. Have you seen this movie, Monica? I have not. This is a movie directed by Jason LaPere and Robert Wilson, and it's a very low-budget movie. It's entirely made up of child actors. Mm -hmm. And this is a movie about a bunch of kids in the woods basically playing war games. There's, like, two teams, and they're trying to attack each other's base, and... There's certain rules, like if you get quote-unquote shot, you have to stay on the ground for 10 seconds, and mm -hmm. if you get hit with a grenade, which is basically a water balloon filled with paint, then you're dead, and you're out. The thing about this movie is that it, it deals a lot with the imagination, so in these kids' minds, they're not you know playing with sticks and stuff. They've actually mm -hmm. got these big M16 weapons 
that they're going around shooting each other with. Mm-hmm. And there are, like, actual explosions that happen with the grenades and stuff. So it's kind of an interesting idea where you've got all these kids running around with weapons <laughs> blowing each other up. Oh, I'm sure that's going over well with parents. <laughs> it's an okay movie. I wouldn't say I loved it, but it's a really interesting premise. I don't think they do quite enough with it. A lot of the characters feel pretty broadly drawn. Like, there's one girl in the movie, and she's, like, having to deal with uh, the fact that she's the only girl there, and she's trying to, like, seduce all the boys and use that to her advantage. (laughs) And she's in love with one of the commanders, and there's, like, another guy that has some bad history with some of the other kids, and there's some issues with their friendship that they're trying to work out. Mm. I like the idea. I wish they had done more, though, to add some sort of political subtext. You wanted more political subtext? Hear me out, hear me out. There's moments in this movie where it seems to be commenting on the nature of actual war. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, where war is basically just a bunch of kids fighting. Like, there's a kid that gets taken prisoner, Mm -hmm. and he's quote-unquote tortured by some of the bigger bullies. And there's just, it's, it's really interesting, just on a conceptual level, to think about how childhood war games theoretically relate to actual violence or political violence, mm-hmm. you know, and how how this glorification that we have of violence when we're children, how that seeps over into the real world mm-hmm. when we're adults. So I wish that the movie had done a little bit more with that. As it stands, it's okay. I mean, it's fun. The performances are pretty bad. Oh, <laughs> they're kids. They're kids, yeah. So, I mean, you just kind of have to expect that going in. It's a low-budget movie starring kids, so these aren't going to be really fantastic performances. It's an okay movie. It's I didn't love it, and I didn't hate it. And I wasn't disturbed by the violence, as some people uh, have been. Okay. Once you get used to the idea of, oh, yeah, in these kids' minds, they're actually using real weapons... Mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's anything super offensive yeah. about that. I mean, any kid that has played games like this or had a snowball fight to a certain extent can appreciate that. All right. It's all part of pretend. I'm going to slide down the scale into a movie that I hated. All right. I'm actually going to recommend that people stay the hell away from this. Um, I finally got to see Dirty Dancing 2, Havana Nights. A lot of people have asked me whether or not I've seen it because, A, I... I am a dance teacher as well, and B, I am of Cuban heritage, so obviously this should have been a natural love movie for me, a guilty pleasure, but it was so horrible. I find it so weird that people would ask you if you've seen Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. I feel like they would just come up and ask you if you've seen Dirty Dancing. I mean, yeah, they've asked me for Dirty Dancing, but they've asked me for Havana Nights because they're like, oh yeah, there's Latin dancing in it, so I'm like... Yeah. <laughs> and now that I finally saw it, I could say, yeah, but it's bad Latin dancing. It's set in the pre-Castro era during Batista, and there's all this talk about the communists taking over. But in the, of course, the whole backdrop, that's the backdrop. And the whole thing that we're watching is this little love story of this American girl who comes over with her family and sort of befriends this hotel worker who is a mean salsa dancer. And he sort of introduces her to his world and all the things that go with it. So this is a period piece? Yes. When is it set? Uh, 1950s, like late 1950s. 
Okay. So for me, it was also, I, I looked a lot at the dancing part. The music is awful, which then only gets worse because the dancers are dancing either offbeat to what the music is playing or the music is, what the music is playing doesn't match what they're dancing. So it's like they had something else playing on set and then they added the tracks later. <laughs> wow. So that's, that was bad. And then of course, it really didn't help that the music was just awful. Like I could have, I would have killed for some 1950s, like mambo, like traditional rumba, any sort of that, or just like, like conga, cha-cha, samba, anything, period piece, I would have taken it, but they didn't. It was all like new remix, Latin jazzy stuff, which meh. At best, at worst, it was awful. And I think at one point they brought the uh, they brought some sort of uh, Shakira song, but without Shakira singing it, so it was not a very strong vocalist. But for me, the dancing really was awful because they talk about like the Latin dancing, and at that time it was mambo because that was the 1950s as a heyday of mambo. It doesn't switch over to salsa until about the 1970s. Then when you pan out into the crowd, all the dancers are doing salsa. Wow. So that's not mambo. And then another thing is the daughter, the young American girl, she's always comparing herself to her parents because she wants to be such awesome dancer like her parents were. And then when we finally see the parents dancing, it's edited so badly. They was trying to get around the fact that these actors don't know how to dance. At all. <laughs> okay. I am, I'm looking on IMDb. Are her parents played by January Jones and John Slattery from Mad Men? No, I thought it was... Because um, I see that they're in the cast. Is Scylla, Scylla Ward plays her, pa- her mother. Okay. John Slattery plays her father. Yeah. January Jones plays someone named Eve. Eve. Yeah. I think she's like a friend or something who's like bitchy. Okay. There's a lot of... It's weird. There's sometimes racism that comes up. Like there was when... Dirty Dancing, there was a lot of classism because the dance instructors were poor so, or the people that worked at the resort were poor. So when the main girl comes and offers monetary help for a problem that they have, they kind of look down on her and like, oh, we don't need your charity. For here, it was a, they threw around a lot of like racial slurs at the, well, not a lot. They threw a few racial slurs here and there and they're like, no, we don't dance. We don't mix with them. I'm like, oh, that's right. It's 1950s. I guess that goes. It made more sense in the original Dirty Dancing. In Dirty Dancing 2, it's like, it's really cut into certain places. It doesn't flow, I feel as well, which is a problem with the script in general. And then Patrick Swayze does make a cameo appearance for about all of five minutes, dances twice, and I would have watched that rather than the movie because the two leads played by Diego Luna and Ramola Garay, mm-hmm. they did about six weeks of dance camp before taking on this film. And you cannot teach that amount of technique, natural grace and style within six weeks. I did not realize Diego Luna was in this movie until just now. I like Diego Luna. Is, is he good in this movie? He's good in the dramatic scenes, but the moment he gets on the floor, I'm like, you're not in control of what your body is doing. <laughs> so I got really judgy. I got really judgy on the dance. Um, I li- I decided to live tweet it for fun, and it basically became a dance critique after a while. <laughs> they filmed some parts and outside, like, old San Juan in Puerto Rico, because it's the – you can't actually film in Cuba. They won't let you. So then everything else, once you go inside, takes place – 
in like really cardboard cutout sets. So I was just not convinced. It was a very badly made film. How was Ramona Garai out of curiosity? Because she does a lot of British TV now, and she was on a really great TV series called The Hour. I mean, she was okay dramatically. I didn't believe their chemistry really. It just felt odd. It kind of seems weird how some of the scenes are filmed in the salsa, in the mambo club, which should be a mambo club, but it's salsa. Because as I commented on it、uh, when I was watching it, you know, it's a lot of like Latin extras in various、uh, modes of undress and stuff like that, and they're like grinding on each other, which is not salsa at all. It looked weird, and how she then got into this world because oh, it's like sexy, it's hot. It just、mm-hmm. kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Now I haven't. It's been forever since I saw the original Dirty Dancing.、Mm-hmm. Was that movie intended to be like this really, really sexy, steamy dance film, or did it just sort of become that over time? Um, there were there were some dance moves that were sexy, but. It's, A lot more of like the romance and the connection, which is what for dancers when you do a duet or when you dance in ballroom, you have to have that certain connection. That's a lot of what he's teaching her. So that whole training montage, teaching her the movements and things like that. There's also parts where he's teaching her like lead and follow. And here it's just kind of sla- the same thing happens, but it's slapped together where it's mostly like him trying to force her to move her hips, and it's not working. <laughs> If you're gonna make a dance movie, get dancers. How's that? From what you're describing, it sounds like the studios were like, "Oh yeah, Dirty Dancing came out 20 years ago, and Patrick Swayze was like a sex symbol, so we'll do this new version that's like super sexy, yeah, and erotic, and it'll be set in Cuba, yeah, exotic, yeah." That's a lot of what the vibes that I got. So, so it just missed the whole spirit of the original. Yeah, it, again, that whole. Not being able to dance as dancers in a dance movie is kind of—it's a big、uh, thing to miss. There, <laughs> I wanted more Patrick Swayze. It could have used more Patrick Swayze, or he could have taught them. He's a dance instructor in the hotel that she's staying at, and he does like maybe one lesson with her. And I was like, no, more, more. <laughs> does the movie do anything at all with like Cuban politics or anything, or the politics surrounding Cuba? Not other than it was. It's like her talking、uh, in a flash back about this thing that happened, and then they had to leave because then Castro was taking over, and then she never saw him again. Oh bummer. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see like a dance movie where dancing overthrows a political regime. Well, not overthrows a political regime, but it actually made me miss the Lost City a lot more because it's. It's Andy Garcia's movie that I think he directed as well, and it was a. It has to do a lot with the fact that he his family had to flee Cuba. So, like when my family saw this, it became an event. Like everybody sit down, we're watching the Lost City because it's our history. It follows this nightclub owner, so you have a lot of dance acts. And when he takes out、um, his girlfriend, he also takes her out dancing. So you see like really traditional Cuban dancing, like Wawanko and Afro Cuban Rumba. What would have been nice to see in Dirty Dan. Dancing, and they kind of have a scene that has it, but they do it wrong. For Afro-Cuban rumba, it's usually a competition between a guy and a girl, and they have two guys dancing, which you don't usually see 
but yeah, like little things like that made a big difference. So I appreciated the Lost City a lot more in terms of the final days of capitalist Cuba. I want to see a third Dirty Dancing movie, Monica. I want to see Dirty Dancing Syrian Days, where the Syrian regime is overthrown by the power of dance. Maybe. Either that or Dirty Dancing Jerusalem Twilight. (laughs) They they did a West Bank story. I like that one. I want to see the Israeli-Palestinian conflict get solved through the power of dance. That's been done. West Bank story. If people haven't seen that, it's a fun little cute spoof on West Side Story between two warring fast food chains and the people that in the community that are around them. I don't know if I have seen that. I'll have to check that it's out. It's definitely where it was. Uh, I think I'm not sure if it won for the Oscar, but I know it was nominated in its year. Okay. So much better than Dirty Dancing Havana Nights is basically <laughs> what I'm saying. It's a mess. All right. Well, The next movie I want to talk about is a movie called Drug War. This, I believe, might also still be playing in select theaters around the country. It is a movie directed by Johnny Toe, who is a pretty big name in the Hong Kong film industry. He he directs a lot of crime movies, um, and he's extremely prolific. He puts out at least one or two movies a year, and he produces one or two movies a year as well. So the guy just doesn't stop working. And Drug War is his first film, I believe, set entirely in mainland China. And it's about a drug enforcement officer who's trying to track down this this drug kingpin. He uh, captures this one drug lord and persuades him to help him take down the kingpin so it's it's sort of about their battle of wits as they're putting all these elements into place and the police officer is trying to take down this drug kingpin meanwhile this drug lord is saying that he's going to work with him but you're not sure if he can really be trusted or if he's actually just trying to escape and it's it's a pretty well done movie it's not one of the best johnny toe movies i've seen but it's better than a lot of some of his other later work there isn't a lot of action in it, strangely enough, mm-hmm. but whenever there is action, the shootouts are really well done. And Johnny Toe uh, has a really unique style of, direct- of directing action. Um, it all feels very precise, and it sort of feels like a dance in many ways, kind of like old John Woo movies. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a well-done movie. It's not great, but there are some good moments and some good ideas in it. I'd say if you're in the mood for an Asian crime movie, you could definitely do worse than Drug War. Hmm. And I'm not a Johnny Toe expert, but a lot of people I know that really love Johnny Toe uh, absolutely adore this yeah. movie and, and say say it's one of his best. So if, if you like his previous work, you should definitely check it out. I've certainly heard a lot about it. I'm very interested in seeing it. I didn't love it, but it's pretty good. Um, I didn't like it quite as much as the movie he did a year or two ago. I think it was called Life Without Principle. Mm -hmm. And that might be available to watch instantly on Netflix. I'm not sure. So that's another one people should consider checking out. But uh, what's next on your list? Next one on my list, I decided to, along with uh, revisiting a lot of older directors that I've missed their works, um, I decided to revisit some of the old Bollywood movies I had seen. There was a public access channel that used to show, like, video clips. So, like, it used to be, like, the songs or so out of Bollywood movies. And you could basically sit and watch almost an entire Bollywood movies out of all the clips that they played. (laughs) 
So I decided <laughs> to, you know, finally start piecing together the ones that I remember. And DevDaws was one of the ones that I do remember. This one came out in 2002, and it's more of a modern Bollywood classic starring two of the biggest names out there, Shah Rukh Khan and Aishwarya Rai Bachan. Oh, man, Shah Rukh Khan. Yeah, he's a big name, and he just came out with uh, Chennai Express, which is still in theaters now. But um, it's totally melodramatic. There is so much crying in there. It plays like a novella. It's kind of funny in that <laughs> sense, which I didn't, I hadn't seen before because they, I only had seen the music, the uh, music videos. So that was news to me. But then again, I got to re-see the pretty good choreography and lots of great dance scenes. And music is amazing too. It's one of my, it's certainly one of my favorites um, for Bollywood music. So I'd highly recommend if you haven't come across Dev Das and interested in getting into Bollywood, this is a good melodramatic entrance. <laughs> That's Dev Das, D-E-V-D-A-S? Yes. Do people cry while they're singing and dancing? Some do. Wow, that's impressive. Yes, it's a uh, it's a very emotional movie. It's it's basically um, these two lovers can't be together because they're of different classes, so their lives sort of diverge into different paths, but they still pine for each other. So they deal with their grief in different ways, and one of them descends into alcoholism. So it gets it gets pretty serious. Whoa. Stark. Yeah. There also is a character who is a uh, dancer, quote unquote, um, with a heart of gold. So <laughs> she she has a, some really good dance numbers, though. Okay. <laughs> now, I like you two boys. You remind me of me. See, as how you two is from Arkansas, and we know some of the same people, and we grew up in some of the same places. I reckon we can make a deal for something. A deal for what? Food. Food for a boat. He's a bum, Ellis. Come on. Why don't you go get your own food? Well, I would if I could. See, I told somebody I'd meet him here, so. Well, I'm stuck for now, and what I got for no love. He's a bum, Ellis. Come on. I ain't no bum. I got money, boy. You can call me a hobo because a hobo will work for his living. You can call me homeless because, well, that's true for now. But you call me a bum again, I'm going to teach you something about respect your daddy never did. Well, the fourth movie I'm going to recommend is Mud. This is the latest feature film from director Jeff Nichols, who directed Take Shelter a few years ago. I saw Mud when it came out earlier this year, and I recently watched it again on DVD. And this movie is so good. Have you seen it, Monica? I have. McConaughey's on a roll, man. He is. He is. This is a movie set in the South. It's set in Arkansas, and it's a coming-of-age story about two young boys who meet a fugitive mm -hmm. on the run from, from the law. And the fugitive wants their help because he's trying to reunite with the love of his life. Mm -hmm. And it's a really, really good movie. It's, it's, it's like a movie Mark Twain would direct <laughs> if he was alive today. It, it, it reminds me of, like, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn and, and stories in that vein. It does kind of weird me out a little bit because it seems like every woman in this movie is awful. The kid's mother is awful. The girl that he then has a crush on turns out to be horrible. And then, of course, Reese Witherspoon is kind of also a sketchy character. I don't think that they're awful. Okay. I think they're fairly realistic. They're complex. They're not, they don't always live up to this idealized portrait that the male characters have of them. 
Okay. I think the movie is just as much about male expectations in relationships as it is about women and how women act in relationships. And it's just, it's just a really, really good movie. It really is all about love, and it's 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 a very romantic movie in a sense. It has a very romantic view of the world and idealized view mm-hmm. of the world, but it's also kind of cynical at the same time. It, it, it's about that balancing act, about is it worth being idealistic about love, or should you be completely cynical? And it's about finding a balance and being and, and becoming an adult mm-hmm. in how you look at relationships, um, because this this main character, Ellis... This young boy, his parents are about to split up, so he's helping Mud, the fugitive. It, it, it's sort of a, a way for him to hypothetically get his parents back together. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, if, if he can help, if he can help Mud get back together with his true love, maybe there's still hope for his parents or for his relationship with the the girl that he has a crush on. And it's just it's just a really really well done film. Matthew McConaughey gives a great performance. Um, there's just so much going on in this movie about relationships and parents and children and how we're socialized and we grow up believing certain things about the world and, and, and there's just a lot of good stuff about violence and revenge. And I was thinking about it and I realized that, Monica, in most Hollywood movies, Matthew McConaughey's character, Mud, would be the villain. Yeah. And the people going after Mud would be the heroes. Actually, that Huck Finn analogy is pretty accurate then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this movie just sort of flips your ex- your expectations on their head. No one in this movie feels like a stereotype mm-hmm. or feels completely one-dimensional. There, there are a few villains that feel like they're painted in very broad strokes, but by the end of the movie, you realize there's more to them than meets the eye. But yeah, is there anything else you want to say about Mud? It's another great performance and Matthew McConaughey's Rise Again. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely uh, love this movie. I liked it the first time I saw it. I loved it the second time I saw it. I can't wait to see how it holds up on a third viewing. So if you haven't seen Mud, definitely go check it out. All right, Monica, what's the last film that you want to talk about? Last one's totally a silly pig, but I rewatched Purple Rain with a friend of, with a few friends of mine, and I still had a lot of fun. This was one of my first rated R movies that I was allowed to see, and I had to watch it with my mom, which... If you've seen Purple Rain, it's totally awkward. That is not a movie you're supposed to watch with your mom. I have not seen Purple Rain. All I know is that it's the Prince movie. So tell me more about this film. It is pretty much the only good Prince movie. I'm not a fan of Under the Cherry Moon, and the less said about Graffiti Bridge, the better. <laughs> so it, it's the, he plays the whole album of Purple Rain. It's perfect and wonderful, and you can totally sing along. It's basically Prince plays the kid who then kind of has, can I say he falls in love with, he's very emotionally detached throughout the whole film, but he gets mixed up with this singer who's trying to break it in uh, First Avenue, which is the club that he performs at, and another rival band then ties to take her and form her into their own girls group. So it's this competition between the kid and this rival band who's headed by Morris Day of Morris Day in the time. It's really interesting. I know way too much about this movie because I've read a few Prince books. I'm a fan. All of the music is produced by Prince, basically. 
Modern Air, the, the another band there that's just one song is another Active Prince. Apollonia Six is the girls group that formed after Vanity Six after Vanity left, and More Stay in the Time, of course, was uh, Prince's first side band that he or like pet project that he helped produce and got out there. I I don't know a lot about this movie. You you say that they play the entire Purple Rain album. Is this a musical or is the album just used as the soundtrack? It's used as a soundtrack, but they play it on stage, so it's performed "quote unquote" live. But if you watch, you'll notice that Prince's guitar is actually never plugged in in any of the sets that he does, and I think that might be true for a few other ones. Yeah, um, but the music is all performed, I guess. But it's not a musical in that people break out in song and dance form. But it's not a concert film either. But it's not a concert film. It has a plot with it. Okay. Whereas um, the, his Sign of the Times movie is a concert film. Okay, okay. Now I feel like I have to see Purple Rain just to figure out what kind of movie this it's is. It's very much a late night. I, I liked it as a midnight movie. I, I sung along with my friend watching it, but the acting's not super great. Prince is really weird as an emotionally distant kid. He's your lead actor, so... It's kind of like, oh, that's odd. And then there's, it takes some really dark tones as a, a few films in the 80s apparently tried doing. You see his home life and his parents are dealing with spousal abuse and his dad like hits his mom many times and at one point tries to kill himself. So it's dark. <laughs> and then you have all this like poppy 80s synth music. Now he made this film and he made the album before he became the artist formerly known as Prince. Yes, this movie was in 1984. The, art- the artist formerly known as Prince happened in 1999. Okay. Well, uh, 1996 when he was going through his legal battles with uh, Warner Brothers. Okay. Yeah, he kept it through until about the early 2000s and then he became Prince again. Be honest, Monica. Is this a good movie or is this a movie that's so bad it's good? It's so bad it's good, but it's such a great soundtrack. <laughs> I can't emphasize that enough. And it's a pretty good performance. Like one of the concerts I had my the most fun at was seeing Prince live. So it's definitely, he puts on a good show. It's so weird to me, Monica, that you're younger than me and yet you love Prince. Yeah, it wears <laughs> a lot of people out. <laughs> like earlier in this episode, you were like, I was seven when Face Off came out. And, I'm, and I was thinking, oh, I feel really old. And now you're like, I love Prince. And I'm thinking, oh, I feel so young. <laughs> I'm actually a time traveler. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> All right. Well, I saved the best for last. The last movie I want to talk about is a movie called The Invader, which is a Belgian film. And I first saw this movie two years ago at the Toronto International Film Festival. It was the last movie I saw at the festival. I saw it on a whim, and it blew me away, and then I never heard about it again. It, like, it vanished. It got released overseas, I believe, and maybe even came out on DVD overseas, but I never heard anything about it getting U.S. distribution, and I was really, really sad. And I believe it was in my top 10 of 2011. And a few weeks ago, it did finally receive U.S. distribution. It is available at the moment through Vire Films at virefilms.com, which is a new video-on-demand service. I think it costs maybe $15 to buy the movie or to sign up for their entire catalog. 
And this movie is just absolutely incredible. Uh, it's directed by Nicholas Provost. This is his first feature film. He's done a lot of short films. And he's, he's, a, he's a visual artist, so he does a lot of video installations in museums and stuff like that. Um, and this movie is, ba- is about an African immigrant who washes up on the beach in Belgium. And it's about him just struggling to get by as an illegal immigrant. He's, he's homeless, doesn't have a place to live, he needs a job. And he becomes infatuated with this wealthy white businesswoman. And they have a relationship, and then it sort of devolves and becomes something a little bit more sinister. And this movie is just fascinating. It's, it's visually stunning. Nicholas Provost is one of the most talented filmmakers, visually speaking, that, that, that I've ever seen. He just does a really incredible job of mixing imagery with sound and music. This movie is hypnotic and there's just so much stuff going on underneath the surface there's a there's not a lot of dialogue he knows how to use silence and the lead actor here isaka sawadogo who plays the lead character amado he's absolutely spectacular and he just manages to communicate so much just through his face and through his eyes where you get a sense of how alienated he feels from people around him. I wrote a full review of the, of the film, which you can find over at moviemezzanine.com if you want some more information about it. But yeah, I would highly recommend people check it out. Uh, right now it's available at virefilms.com. I don't know if it's ever going to be available on, on Netflix or other services at some point in the future. It, it might be at some point. But I would highly recommend that people check out The Invader. Sweet. Yes, I'm so happy this movie finally got released. Oh, I know that feeling. Yes. Or like when they wait over a year to show it. Yeah, I had basically just resigned myself to never getting to see this film again unless I like purchased a, a foreign DVD and had oh, it yeah. in- imported. And then when I heard that this movie was getting a a video on demand release. I was like, Oh my God, finally, (laughs) it only took two years. (laughs) So yes, people should definitely go check out the invader. I think that's all the movies we have to talk about in this first installment of cinema fix overdose. Let's move on to the final segment of the show, which is DVD recommendations. This is the episode for September 2013. There are quite a few movies coming out on DVD this month. And also, this is meant to be a a segment where we recommend stuff that's streaming on Netflix as well. So, Monica, what would you recommend that people check out that's that, that that's about to be released well apparently on september 17th uh, it looks like universal is doing a re-release of their monster movies just in time for halloween so i would definitely recommend the 1931 dracula and the frankenstein films of those i'm also a big fan of the wolfman and it was funny that uh i came across that because i just recently watched monster squad for the first time too and they all make them an appearance in there unfortunately monster squad is not being it's not part of the re-release but dracula frankenstein and the wolfman certainly are get your halloween on (laughs) it's been a while since i saw those old black and white monster movies but from what i remember i watched the original frankenstein a few years ago Mm -hmm. i think maybe even in a in a class and that movie holds up yeah that they do great movie and i mean it's the classic is boris karloff it's bella lugosi yes lon chaney jr it's good stuff 
It's good stuff. If you're a fan of horror and old school monsters, you should definitely yeah. check that out. And if you're a fan of horror and old school monsters, why haven't you already checked this out? <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) What's wrong with you? Well, do you have anything else to recommend? Yes. I also, on the same day, The Bling Ring is coming out. So if you miss Sofia Coppola's movie um, starring Emma Watson, I would definitely recommend that. It's the group of teenagers that decide to rob celebrities because they're so infatuated with them. It's really interesting. It's a short film, but it's definitely got a lot to say. I have a confession, Monica. What? I have only seen one Sofia Coppola film. Well, now you can fix that. And that was Lost in Translation a few years ago. Which is good. Uh, I didn't care for it when I first saw it. I think I would rank The Virgin Suicides higher. So if you haven't seen that, that's definitely where where to start. Um, Marie Antoinette's not my favorite, and I hated Somewhere. So I'm really glad she's she's back with the bling ring. <laughs> well, she's one of those filmmakers where I've just been meaning to take a weekend at some point and just watch all of her films. Yeah, you, you really could. Anything else to recommend? Yes, later that this month, on September 24th, uh, VHS 2 is coming out. So if you missed that when it was in theaters or haven't seen it on VOD, now you can at home, nice and safe, or is it? <laughs> um, it's... The same premise as the original VHS, but I think it's done much better. They have four new directors doing uh, little segments that someone, you know, puts in a tape, takes out the tape, and watches it. And it's very interesting. Of course, my favorite there would be Gareth Evans. Uh, I think it's Safe Haven. Higgs segment alone is the scariest 20 minutes I've seen in cinema this year. Easy. Yeah, it's a the VHS series. It's a it's an anthology series. So mm-hmm. VHS and VHS two both contain four or five short horror films from different directors. I know Adam Wingard, who directed Your Next, directed like the uh, yep. the narrative that sort of links them all together. I believe, or mm-hmm. did he do the first segment? I can't. I think he did one of the vignettes. Okay. Yeah, I thought his was the last. Anyways. I can't remember. There's four different directors in this one. Yeah, and then the the story that holds it together. The guy that directed the Blair Witch Project directed one of the Mm -hmm. segments, which was pretty cool. Gareth Evans, as you mentioned, directed a spectacular segment called Safe Haven. I've seen both the VHS films. I thought the first VHS movie was okay, not great. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the segments were pretty mediocre, but VHS 2... I would say I either liked or loved all of the segments in the film. Yeah, it was definitely a great watch. Yeah, it's highly recommend. Really intense. Just really, you you get different styles of horror from each director, and there, mm-hmm. there's elements in all of the uh, the short films that I liked this time around. I think you're right. I think Gareth Evans' Safe Haven is probably the best. It's certainly the most memorable, just because it yeah. gets so weird. And, and crazy and wonderful and if you don't know gareth evans is the director responsible for the raid redemption which is one of the best action films of the past 10 years mm-hmm. and i can't wait to see the raid too yeah and i guess a, a little quick shout out for my fellow nerdy projectors out there season seven of doctor who comes out which was uh, mixed to say the least but it's the introduction of a new companion so that was interesting and goodbye to one of the companions that stayed on the show for the longest, uh, at least in this recent uh, incarnation. Goodbye to the pawns. So it's it's interesting. And it's also there to gear up for the 50th anniversary coming up in November. Well, I'm sure on the 
Dirty Projectors podcast. I'm sure you and Michelle will be talking about the new Doctor Who. We did. We just recorded our episode yesterday. Okay, okay. Well, I can't wait to listen to that. I I actually haven't seen any of Doctor Who, so... Forty told you, if you want to get caught up really quick in time for November, uh, start with Season 5, because that's the introduction of the latest Doctor, and then you can work on through. So there's only two seasons to catch up on. Well, I was just about to ask what, where I should start, because I've also heard that the David Tennant years were good. They are, but you can definitely work backwards. It's different people come onto the show, so there's different doctors, and then the companions are the normal people that jump into the TARDIS with them. So those also change from sometimes season to season. Sometimes they stay on a little longer. They usually stay on for about a season, and these last companions stayed on for about two seasons. So that was interesting. I mean, I don't know much about Doctor Who other than that it involves time travel and going to various locations in space and time and interacting with different alien beings and whatnot. I get the impression this is not a serialized show. No. It's fairly episodic. Yeah, for the most part. Does each season have like a through line that it sticks to or or not? Yeah, um, they started doing that more recently. It used to be more just episodic. There wasn't too many overarching storylines, but um, starting with season five, they had a little girl who was afraid of a crack in the wall, and it turned out to be that it was a crack in the space-time continuum, so then had to go solve that as a crack in space and time. And that sort of thing. So they have been more and more. And then this last one, they started dealing with the Great Intelligence, which is another one that just kept cropping up in different episodes. And then finally had to defeat this person who wanted to take over the planet. The Great Intelligence. Is that like God? No, it's a, it's a bad guy. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> it's a bad guy. As well as the fun little monsters that pop up. Um, the Weeping Angels is one of the more memorable ones to come out of the the latest reboot of the Doctor, so that makes a few appearances in season five and six and uh, seven now, and um, of course this favorites the Cybermen and the Daleks. You're just saying gibberish to me now. I'm just saying words at this point for you, yeah. <laughs> but anyone else who's you know came across this you, before, you, you could just be making up words, and I would have no idea. Yeah, it's a fun sci-fi show. I would highly recommend it if you haven't gotten into it yet. Now's a good time. All right. Well, I have two movies I'm going to recommend on DVD. Uh, the first should actually be released on DVD shortly, either just as this, this podcast is being released or, or shortly before. Uh, it's a movie called Blanca Nieves. I s- saw this last year at the Toronto International Film Festival. It was directed by Pablo Berger, and it is a retelling of the Snow White story, but it is set in Spain in the 1920s, and it is a silent black-and-white film. I so want to see this movie. It's been on my to-watch list for a while. This movie is really good. It's so well shot and well done. It just it reminds you of how good silent cinema can be, that you don't need a lot of noise and action to make a fun movie. And it's just as a retelling of the Snow White story, it's really, really interesting and really well done. Like, there's all this bullfighting that's involved, and the dwarves are matadors, and there's all this interesting Catholic imagery because it's set in Spain. It's just a really, really well done movie. It could make my top ten of the year. Nice. And I also had the opportunity to interview Pablo Berger about the film 
Uh, you can find that on our Let's Get Real podcast in the archives. So if you see Blanca Nieves and you like it, definitely check out that interview with him. Uh, the other movie I'm going to recommend, it's another movie I saw last year at the Toronto International Film Festival. I guess I'm just naming all these movies from TIFF last year because, unfortunately, I'm not able to go this year. You can live vicariously through these recommendations. <laughs> it's a movie that is now available to stream instantly on Netflix. It's called Lore. I believe it received a limited theatrical release earlier this year. It's a German film directed by Kate Shortland, it's set at the end of World War II as the Allies are sweeping through Germany and the Nazis are surrendering. It's about this teenage girl and her siblings, uh, and they're the children of Nazi officers out in the countryside. So the Nazis are losing the war. The parents basically run off and leave the children alone. So the children have to walk and travel across the country to get to their grandmother's house. And it's just about them trying to survive as they walk through this war-ravaged countryside and they meet a mysterious boy who's Jewish um, and that causes some conflict. And it's, it's, it's about children and how we're socialized to believe certain things and it's about sexual awakening and it's about how what we believe about certain things you know, what do we do when we discover those things might not be true? Um, it's just a really, really well-done movie, a really good drama. The lead actress, Saskia Rosendahl, absolutely phenomenal. She She's this uh, new young actress, and she blew me away. She deserves to be a movie star. She is spectacular in this film. I highly recommend that people check out Lore if you haven't already. Have you seen this movie, Monica? I have not seen this movie. Okay, we should check it out. I have a feeling it might be popping up on a few top ten lists at the end of the year. Dang, then I need to catch up. Yes, I, I know a lot of critics really, really loved this movie when it was released in theaters, so check it out. And I should go ahead and mention that if you're interested in seeing any of the films we talked about this episode, I will be providing links on the website in the show notes to where you can find them on Netflix and on iTunes and, and other places like that. So if any of these movies sound interesting to you, go uh, check the website and we'll tell you where, where you can find them. That will wrap it up for this first episode of Cinema Fix Overdose, this first installment of this bonus series. Please write in and let us know what you think. If you want to hear more bonus episodes like this, let us know if you might be willing to pay a dollar or two a month to get bonus content like this. Uh, we, we, we would appreciate your input. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes. So if you like this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us get the word out about the show. Uh, you can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including The Thin Place, Let's Get Real, uh, Avenging Angels, Navigating the Newsroom, and The Nerdy Projectors. Monica, where can people find you online? People can find me online on Twitter and Tumblr at Movies. That's M-C-A-S-T-I Movies. They can also find my reviews reposted on the Boston Online Film Critics Association website at bofca.com. You can find some of my writing at moviemezzing.com and patheos.com. You can follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener, and I will follow you back. And that'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Monica Castillo. And have fun this week overdosing on cinema.
This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!